go to chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26 this morning. I came across an article uh, some time ago asking the question, are too many choices making us miserable? And it, it, it writes, log on to Netflix and you'll be presented with a menu of 6,000 titles. Search for a new toothbrush on Amazon and you'll be bombarded with over 20,000 options, ranging from a manual to mechanical, from packs of three to packs of 12. Freedom of choice is a pillar of Western culture, but there's such a thing as too many choices. Two researchers kind of dug into this and did a massive study showing that being overwhelmed with all these options create, creates more problems, this, what they call choice overload or the paradox of choice. And they, they write, people tend to want as many options as possible, whether it's buying a car or a meal, but when it comes to actually making a decision from all of these options, people can become paralyzed and avoid making choices altogether. Even worse, when they finally do come to a decision, they're more dissatisfied and regretful about whatever choice they make. Because there's something else that maybe they didn't choose. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You just bought something and you're like, oh, you know what, maybe I should have got that other, other thing. This, this remorse. So too many choices could lead to regret and dissatisfaction, or they could lead to inaction altogether. Um, Seth Godin, Godin, he's an author, kind of business guru, he, he, uh, he said this, in a world where we have too many choices and too little time, the obvious thing is to do uh, is just ignore stuff. We don't do anything. Well, thankfully, as we, as Christians, we, we, we have God's help and God's word to come and find some sort of direction among all of those Things. The revelation of Jesus himself helps us come to sense that all of the possibilities, there's, there's greater purpose. There's an overarching shaping reality to our life. And for Paul, he actually narrowed down all of his choices in life to one main ambition for his life. It was singular. It was, it was Christ and his glory. He experienced the freeing power of one singular aim, the goal of Jesus and his glory. And so rather than being paralyzed or dissatisfied by so many choices, it focused him. It brought all things into clarity. It actually fueled his purpose. It, it, it gave him purpose for his life and for his suffering and the endurance of that suffering. And it led to great joy and ultimate deeper satisfaction in God himself. So to, to look at Seth Godin's picture, all, all the roads were, are Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. So for Paul, this, this main ambition and goal focused all things in his life. And yet it did leave him really with two options as he began to see and treasure Jesus more and more. These two options it weren't just a bad one and a good one. It was, it was one that was, is great and one that, that's even better. And we're going to look at those today as we look at our text this, uh, this morning. So let's look at Philippians chapter 1. And we're going we're gonna to back up, even though that verse is broken up into two sections. 
Uh, we're gonna, we'll back up and begin in verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Join me as we pray. Well, Lord, we come to, to some startling and shocking and what, what can feel like overwhelming convictions of the Apostle Paul. And, and Lord... There could be a sense where we read these and feel like there's such a distance from where he is and where we are. But we, we, as we come to your word this morning, would you, would you deepen us today in our satisfaction in who you are, Jesus? Lord, would you, would you show us that, 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 Lord, your steadfast love, Lord, this morning is, is better than life? And that you would, you would help us to, to know, Lord, the, 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 the joy of treasuring you above all else. We know this will come by your spirit alone. It will come by your help alone. So would you come and be with us this morning as your people? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we explored it this sort of missionary update from Paul, and he talked about what had happened to him, his chains, and that the whole purpose of that had divine, a divine goal, the advancement of the gospel, and he talked about how he was able to witness to all of this, the, the guards there in his imprisonment, they were hearing about Jesus, and that because of his courage, others were been emboldened to also um, share Jesus and follow and suffer for Jesus, and that God used a variety of weak people to share the good news of Jesus. And he, he has a small transition now where Paul had been speaking of what has or, or past things that he is rejoicing in, and now he's looking ahead. He says, yes, I will rejoice. See, so he's looking back, reasons to rejoice in salvation that is happening to them is in the work of God in them, and he's this future tense, I will rejoice in something future that is, is coming and he's giving reasons for those things. And it begins with, he begins with his life 
and then he turns attention to his role in their life. And we're going to consider two, two parts to this in his life and his relationship to them, that, that Christians ultimately should have one ambition, one passion. And with that, Christians live with a, with a sense of a holy tension in their life. And so let's, let's begin with Paul's, Paul's ambition, which is, should be ours. He says, I will rejoice because, look at verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my, de- my deliverance. This, this is this, this suffering that he's going through. And to help us understand this section, I think we need to start with this word deliverance. Now, your translation might say the word, use the word salvation. So he may say, would say, this may turn out for my salvation. Most commentators agree that this word back actually better captures what Paul is thinking of. He's He's not just hopeful for a release from prison, that he just is able to get out of jail. That's not his main goal. We can kind of feel it as we look at the flow of his thought. He wants God to be honored in him, Jesus to be honored in him through his life and his death. He has, he has the end in view here, not just release from his present situation. He wanted to suffer and endure because he knew that there was a greater design of God and purpose in them. That actual, that phrase, turn out for my deliverance, it echoes another person in Scripture who suffered greatly with divine purposes and sought to honor God in his suffering, namely Job. We actually hear this exact phrase in Job 13. Job says this in responding to his friends, Keep silent and let me speak, though he slay me. Yet will I hope in him. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. Listen carefully to what I say. Let my words ring in your ears. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. So from his sufferings, though he may die, be slayed, his hope remains in God. And, in, and he knows that the end the, 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 the future eternal purposes, is gonna, this is going to turn out for salvation. Job is speaking about his eternal stand before God Almighty, and he knows he's going to be vindicated. His sufferings, his enduring will prove that he trusts in God even in his loss and his pain. And Paul does not simply have getting out of jail in view. He has God's glory in view, eternity in view, salvation in view. In view. That's why he says in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So his eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be magnified or honored in him, whether life or death. This is, this is Paul's holy ambition. This eager expectation, this word actually means like watching something without the head turned away from other objects. This is, he was captivated. He had a singular focus, undistracted in the millions of choices, and his hope was one thing, Christ. He wanted Christ. He wanted to know Christ, Christ in all that he would live, uh, face in living, and all that he would experience in his dying. And he, 
He sets us up in two statements, a negative statement and a positive one. He says that I would not be ashamed. Now, we talked about this at the beginning of Philippians, that he's locked up in prison as a criminal. This would be ample opportunity for him to be, to be ashamed, as a criminal to be ashamed, and others to shame him, or, or others to feel shame because they're associated with him when they are, when they are beaten or that they suffer. So if you are close to someone and it's a, maybe a child or maybe this is a leader that you respect or revere and that person does something that is shameful, you will experience embarrassment and shame as well. And Paul is saying he has, he has a desire to not be ashamed in, before the Lord at all. He's not concerned with his standing before Caesar and some tribunal verdict, hanging his head in, de- in defeat. He doesn't care about men's opinions. He cares about God's opinion. And he has confidence that his true deliverance, his salvation, what matters is that he stands before God and he hears God's verdict before him. So like Job, not needing to be justified before his friends, or Paul, not having to be justified before men or the world, but justified before God, living in such a way that he glorifies God through his living through his dying. He wants him to be honored. So not shame, but full of courage by his living and by his death. How he dies, how he suffers. Christ to be honored. Christ to be magnified. Meaning he, he wants to live in such a way that, that Jesus is made much of. That, that he is seen as his treasure, that he is seen as most valuable to him in his body, in his living, in his doing, in all he is saying. How, how would he be able to do this? Well, he notices he will not be able to endure, do this by himself, not in his own strength, nor by himself as, as amazing as the Apostle Paul is. Look at verse 19. For I know this will happen through your prayers and the help of the Spirit. Of Jesus Christ. So salvation will come and his enduring to the end in the path of Christ, honoring and living him, this end, he's not going to get there alone by himself nor without a help of the Spirit. Moises Silva writes this, even Paul's personal growth, his sanctification, does not take place in isolation from support of the church. It is indeed a sobering thought that our spiritual relationship with God is not a purely individualistic concern. We are dependent on the Spirit's power in the answer to intercessory prayers of God's people. Paul did not disconnect his deliverance from the empowering work of the Spirit or his pursuit of honoring Jesus in all his living and the means of prayer and care of support of God's people. He realizes he needed the church in order for him to walk this out faithfully. They prayed for Paul, and God helped Paul. He prayed for God's help, and he was helped in his prayer, in God's answers by sending in power and grace through the Spirit for this one ambition, Christ honored, Christ magnified. Paul's main ambition Jesus. And this is where we get to this this infamous mission statement of Paul. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
this is his singular focus. Actually, the Greek is, is simply put, there is no, there, there's an absence of a verb. It's really to live, Christ. To die, gain. To live, Christ. To die, gain. So one, one commentator said we could, we could fill it in. To live is Christ. To, to, to live means Christ. To, to live depends on Christ. To live honors Christ. Everything was, was filled up and swallowed up in this main thing for him. Jesus Christ. This was Paul. And so in his living, all his work, all his doing, the goal to know and honor Jesus. In his dying, he sees it as gain because in that he gets Christ fully. There's no hindrance any longer. He has him. So death is, just, is not just crossing over to the other side. His suffering is an expression of his uniting with him in likeness of his death and his resurrection where he would experience more of Jesus. Therefore, death is not a hindrance, but greater access to what his heart most longs for. So, in his death, he's going to experience Jesus. In his living, he wants Jesus to be known and magnified. So either way, it's gain for him. It's win-win. This is why Paul would write later in, in Philippians, for whatever gain I had, Comparatively, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order to what? That I may gain Christ. So earthly gains of this life, his experience, his influence, his accolades, his, as a religious leader, his job, his advancement, all the things in comparison to Christ seemed like loss or in turn rubbish. He, he experienced the costly and knew the costly sacrifice of Jesus for a sinner like himself. And at that great cost, the riches of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ for him. This gain, this gain made everything else pale in comparison. In order that I may gain Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Do you hear that singular purpose for Paul? Singular aim for him? What if we took all of our choices, our, that image of all the arrows, the many choices of our life that overwhelm us, that overwhelm me, and, and I remembered this in that moment. Because there are so many options or there's so little time, what if this lens was the thing that we saw all of life through? How could to live, Jesus, to die, Jesus, how could that free us? Free us, making us a more happy, joyful people. Paul, Paul was for the good of the Philippians. This is, he loved this peop, these people. He was for their joy. This is, this is why his, this was his mission statement and why he wanted it to be embedded in the hearts of the Philippians. It was his eager expectation and hope. What, what is your eager expectation and hope that, that grips your heart 
today, your, your mission statement. Well, the Lord comes to us with a text like this, and he, we hear the words of Paul and his radical ambition and passion, and we, we hear an invitation for not just temporal joy, but eternal joy for those whom God loves, for us. Paul isn't just flaunting before them saying, look how radical my, my mission statement is. He, no, he is longing for his brothers and sisters to know the freeing joy of an ambition that focuses on Jesus, to see Christ as life and joy. That's why the subtitle of our series is Christ, Our Life in Joy, that, that it would, there is a greater joy and a greater happiness when this is the thing that captivates our hearts. Yet he knew this life and death uh, component uh, left him with a tension here on earth. So uh, all of Jesus was, was up there, kind of this away from here. Hard things are down here. So if dying is gain, why, why live? Why, why remain here? What gave him purpose in that? This is where we, we see this holy tension unfold. So Paul has framed this holy ambition, Christ, that he would be honored, glorified, magnified in all of his life, living and dying, and it leaves him with these two choices, one, one great and one even better. Um, Hillary and I, over the course of our marriage, we had super generous parents that would gift us and friends maybe gift us um, gift cards to fancy restaurants that we normally wouldn't go to on our budget, but we were blessed to go there. And uh, there's something about going to a restaurant where the, the chef is just on point and just everything on the menu is amazing. You know is going to be amazing. It leaves you with, with some indecision. And for me, that, that could be a problem. But is it the bone-in ribeye? Is it the porterhouse? Is it the blue cheese crusted filet? I, I, I don't know. There's so many options. So preferences come into play here, but it, it's not like there's a bad option and then a good option. This is a bunch of really good options, good, better, and best. And Paul's weighing these realities for his life. It says he's hard. He says, I'm hard-pressed. I'm hard-pressed. I'm torn between these Two, verse 23, and what, is, what does he present his options? One is he longs to be with Christ. He, he longs to, to, this holy ambition of his to know and to be with Christ, this satis, deep satisfaction that he knows he was made for, he sees death as the doorway into that. Execution is a very real option for him in prison. This could be a very real thing for him very soon. To depart is one of his options. It's actually a nautical term where it, it, describing ships being set loose from their moorings or being anchored to something. He, 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 he's saying, I'm ready to depart. I'm ready to set sail to where I, my destination really is. And, it, and it's not just good. It, he says, it's, it's better. It's better for me to depart and go be with Jesus. For he would have Christ fully uninhibited, experiencing his grace and his joy and his fellowship. Just hear the, the, the relational reality of him knowing his Savior. A relationship with Jesus. 
with him. To be away from the body means to be at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. You hear, you hear the psalmist's longing here. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because your love, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Better. You hear that? A hunger, a thirst, this this dissatisfaction that can come from us as we look around and what we encounter. But he looked upon the Lord and his love, his, his steadfast love, and it's better, better than life. Nothing is going to satisfy here. It just feels empty. What he most needed, what he most desired, he tasted of the goodness of the Lord. In his presence, he knew there was fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. This is what, what the psalmist saw in part, is what what Paul had experienced. It was the love of God and Jesus Christ and he, Jesus is better. He was better. I mean, how radical is this, this work of, of God's, God's desires, his longings in Paul? I appreciate my D group each week. I get to they entertain me by me asking questions about certain texts that I'm preaching on and I just get to hear them reflect. And we just like around the coffee table just saying like, Where, man, our desires are not here. It's, it feels, feels so far from where Paul is, his love, the, the desires of Christ so deeply in him. And I'm just so aware of my weak desires for him. The things that keep me from him and the, the empty distractions and the empty worldly offerings for my desires. I mean, for Paul or for me in that situation, I, I can't wait to get out of here, you know? Can't wait to get out of here. There's, there's going to be some great spots in Spain that I haven't visited yet. And I, want, I wanted to tour and vacation through those areas. There's so many other things I wanted to, to do. My, my weak desires set my desires on other things. Days could pass, hours could pass, and Christ seems so vacant. But for Paul, comparatively to know and see Jesus was everything else seemed to pale in comparison. And death was gain for him. Our desires, our desires reveal the, the things that we fear losing most, or what we see as gain and most desirable, and when they are stripped from us, we, we see what's truly there. C.S. Lewis wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go, make, go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul tasted of this infinite joy. And he wanted it fully. And his, and his death was not a hindrance, but a doorway into being with Christ. But he loved these people. He, he loved these people and, and he knew his Savior Jesus. He knew his Savior Jesus he knew his Savior didn't come to be served, but to serve. And actually, 
emptied himself, as we will see in chapter 2, in order that others may experience the fullness of and share in his glory and his joy. So he wanted to, he wanted to pattern his, towards his Savior. He wanted to follow in step with his Savior. He knew his dying and departing wasn't an option. So that what was his other option? It was for others' joy and po- progress. Look at verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. So the other option for Paul, he is convinced, he is persuaded to live, to remain in the flesh, in his body, is to serve the Philippians in their progress and their joy in Jesus. And as he does that, as he hopefully gets out and he goes and visits them, he, they're going to be able to have more ample opportunity to glory in Jesus. They themselves will be able to magnify Jesus Christ even more. This word progress is the same word Paul uses in, earlier in, chapter, in verse 12, the advance of the gospel. He knows the advance of the gospel is important. He wants the advance and progress of the gospel in their life. You see how his overarching goal, it, it, it didn't leave him in indecision and regrets and limbo, this, a paradox of choice. It, it, it set him with a resolute conviction. I know there's really two things for me. It's going to be to glorify Jesus in my death, or it's going to be remaining here, and I'm going to glorify Jesus in my living. Those are my options. He didn't want them to miss out in more gospel hope and transformation and knowing Jesus, for Christ to be their all in all and their joy, and they together would have opportunities to glorify God. This was, this was Christ's heart in Paul. Chapter 2, verse 3, in humility count others more significant than yourself. There was something better for him, but he knew this was good, and he wanted that instead. Paul was living this way. That's why he says that, that this was fruitful labor for him, but he knew it was fruitful advancement in their life through Christ, Christ in them, Christ through him. As I pondered that question, like, why, why do I live? What is, what is my purpose? And I look myself in the mirror, and we can oftentimes, and I feel this, or we can promote that for other people, just, it's connected to our gifts. It's connected to our personal fulfillment, it's connected to our self-actualization, like who we become. And for Paul, his answer was Jesus and then others. That was his goal. Radical love for him. Others. I'm here because of Jesus and others. Therefore, his living, his physical, in-flesh, body, working, doing was not drudgery or vain, but it had radical purpose. He's saying, I still got breath in my lungs and therefore, I have radical divine purpose in my life. There's nothing that, that I'm can, I can do to stop that because God is in control of all of this. To know him and to love others. Saint, if you have breath in your lung right now, you have radical divine purpose of God. Radical divine purpose to know Jesus and to make him known. This, this is ours. This is mine. What is, what is radical is Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. It almost sounds like Paul's like got a decision in that. You know, it's not like he is saying, I have ultimate choice whether I will die or not. 
God is the one that ultimately will decide that. It wasn't in his hands. God's timeline was what was best. But he's saying, whatever that is, in my living or my dying, I'm going to entrust it to the Lord and maximize God's glory and loving others in that. But this, this presents sort of a, a challenge for us when we cannot see and we do not know. It's difficult to believe when someone we love was taken too soon in our mind. I mean, that's great for you, Paul, that you, you know it would be a blast that you would get away and exit right now and you're with Jesus, but that leaves us, leaves us hurting and aching and at loss. We need you. It is better that a loved one who knows Jesus is with Christ because they're whole and they're in the fullness of his presence now. We can rejoice, but yet Christians, we, we are right to grieve and there is sorrow in that. Paul understood this. This wasn't so like high and lofty reality. I mean, he would say later in chapter 2 when he thought he almost lost his dear friend and their Philippians' dear brother, Epaphroditus. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, God, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. So he, he would have known Epaphroditus would have had gain in his death, but he was confessing to the reality that there was sorrow, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow for him. So I think if a reminder for us saints, we, we can both rejoice and we face the reality of great sorrow and grief in that as well. And in the mystery of those timings, all we can do is turn in trust to our wise God and say, Lord, you know best and we ask for your comfort here. And that's been my prayer for you. We even prayed this morning and our time of prayer that God would, God would bring comfort in these holidays, this season for those who would face this timing question, that God would, the God of all comfort would comfort your hearts. So two options, one controlling passion, the goal to magnify Jesus in life or death. So if we are to suffer and depart, we need not fear death, for it is to be, it is to be with Jesus there is gain. If it is to be here, in our living, it is to know him and to make him known so that others, by our love and their hearing of the gospel, would come to know Christ and experience their purpose. God is after our joy through this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, asks this question, what is the chief end of man? A man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It echoes a reality here of what Paul is saying. To glorify God, but note here, it is to enjoy Him. It's not one or the other. Pursuing joy and glorifying God are not two different things. Actually, as we glorify Him, as we seek to aim our life in such a way, life or death, to magnify and treasure Jesus and live for Him, we will find the greatest joy and satisfaction that we, our hearts, most need in part now, and fully one day. I have been so helped in my Christian walk and in ministry through the ministry of John Piper and, and his impact, his, his mantra, his preaching, his teaching around this reality. My pursuit of joy is not contrary to glorifying God. And actually, what he would call Christian hedonism, our pursuit of joy is most necessary 
We should be after our pleasure and joy and satisfaction, but it is fulfilled in God. And when we do find it in Him, our souls are maximized in joy. God's why He would say God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Actually, commentating on this particular text, Piper would phrase this way, Christ is most magnified in us in life and in death, whether we live or whether we die, when we are most satisfied in Christ, that in what we have in this life or what we lose in death. So what we have presently, Christ satisfies more. What we may lose in this time, if we think the timing is right or wrong or what we've missed out or not, we have gain is Christ. To live Christ, find joy and satisfaction in Him, and so that others may too, and to die is gain, we fully experience His glory and joy. But I'll be honest, as I wrestled through this text this week, as I reference in our little coffee time, it, I, am not, I am not here. Sometimes it's a day-by-day reality where I don't think about this or feel this or are motivated by this. At times I feel like far off and in, in some way look at Paul and it feels like he is like at the top of this ladder and I'm down at the first rung. I mean, I'm still getting one of my feet on the bottom rung. And as we actually, we talked about this in our coffee. It, I think it's more helpful to consider it like a path, not a ladder. Paul is not up there and we're down here. There's a journey that we're all walking towards. And that, that is Christ, that one day. And Paul, Paul's a little bit of a, he's maybe a lot more ahead of, of me. And he's, and he's becking all of us saying, come, this is, there's better satisfaction. There's better joy here. This is really what discipleship is. We're, we're all on this journey. Nobody up here and nobody down here. We're all walking the same way towards our goal, Jesus. And we're saying, come. There's a better way. There's a better place. There's, there's, there's a, an object of our hope and our joy, and it is Christ. So, so how do we do that? How do we grow to know? How do we move towards this to live Christ, to die Christ? Well, I, I think there's two things. that there's, there's many more that we could say, but just considering our text is the Holy Spirit's work. It is, it is only supernatural. And secondly, time. It's, it's a progress, progressive thing. It's, it's a process. So we, we don't need to forget, Paul was the one at one point who hated Christ and was seeking to kill Christians. He didn't arrive at this place, like just you know, waking up one morning and then he was writing this letter. He did have a radical encounter with the risen Jesus Christ, which I have not, but he did. But he, it took him time to know and treasure Jesus like he does here on these pages. You know, the, like the Antiques Roadshow, right, where the old lady brings the old vase that her great-great-grandmother, you know, she found in their attic that's however many hundred years old. The expert who's able to evaluate the worth and value of that precious item, it took him time to be able to get there, to have a discernment, to know and spot the value of that treasure. And Paul is in the same place. This is probably over 30 years of ministry before he penned these words, seeing God move, seeing God's power, seeing God's salvation, seeing God's faithfulness, seeing his promises, 
encountering the work of the Spirit in his life, and also hardship, pain, shipwrecks, beatings, sickness, thorns in his flesh, being reviled, betrayal, broken friendships. All of those things took time. But he would say chapter 3 and remind him, even in this point in his life, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make this my own. He's still progressing. He's still walking. I want to prize Christ. I want to get the treasure, the prize in the end. He's pressing on, and he would say in chapter 4 that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul learned this. He had to learn to find a satisfaction in Jesus, as do we. So it's, it's small, and it's the big. It's the day by day that we have opportunity to grow in treasuring Christ, encouraging others to encounter Christ. Sometimes he does instant, immediate work, supernatural things. It's like nothing there, and then boom, fire. He, he does that, but many times, and most times, it's inter- incremental, it's progressive, it's daily moments in our lives where I have a choice to discern and turn and trust. Well, am I going to choose Jesus, or, or am I going to choose my lust? Am I going to choose Christ, or am I going to choose to believe this lie? Or, or will I move towards faith in Christ and say, Jesus, you are better. Help me to see that. Help me to know that. Help me to, to know and count all is lost and you as gain in this situation, in this suffering, in this relationship. Progressive. Secondly, it's supernatural. How do we grow in treasuring? Oh, I think a, a key verse here is verse 19. It is through your prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul. He was not exempt, as we already have said. And it's why he, he prays for the Philippians. We saw this earlier, that they'd abound more and more in love, and they'd be filled up with Christ and His righteousness for that day of Christ. He, he prays for them, and he's asking for prayers from them. And he's wanting more prayers from them. And that's why he would pray for the Ephesians church, that they'd be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul longed for the the supernatural work in his own life, and he knew that it was only going to happen by prayer and through the work of the Spirit in that church's life. A supernatural work of the Spirit by Jesus in them and in us will make in our hearts a, a greater revelation of the love of God in Jesus Christ, an increasing reality of the treasure of who Jesus is. Notice the boundless reality, that the endless reality that Paul wanted for them and that God wants for us. Height, depth, width, overflowing, amassing all of our life, all-consuming love of God. I was with a dear brother this week, mature in the Lord, seasoned brother in the Lord, knows God, knows his word, and he's suffering and he's facing a very hard reality in his world right now, broken things, and I, I just asked, how can I help you? He just said, just, would you pray for me? Pray for me. Pray for resolve. I, I, I'm tempted to let things go, and I, I need hope. 
My brother needs the spirit of Jesus Christ to strengthen him, and he needs prayer for that reality. So not alone with the spirit of Christ and not alone with community. This, this was it. It was so humble of him. It's humble of Paul. It's what I need. It's what you need. How would he find Jesus more valuable in life or in death and want others to know the same? Prayer and the work of the Spirit of Jesus is empowering grace to know Jesus and to help to love others in the way that we should. Would you pray for me for that? I pray that for you. Would you pray for me? Don't assume for a moment that the pastor, any pastor, has got it. I don't. I, I will not get to the end without the work of the power of the Spirit and your prayers. Pray for each other. I encourage you. Pray for each other. Open up the directory on your church center app. Look at faces. Look at names. Pray. Pray for endurance. Pray for Jesus Christ to, to swell in our hearts and our ambition, that our, our focus, that He would be the one, that He would be the one. And, and in us getting our eyes on Him, it would, it would free us from the, the, the entrapping anxieties of this world and the lust and the lives that would try to keep us from faithfully walking together, treasuring, prizing Him. We need Him. We need the Spirit of Christ to fill us with his love. And I, I'm just encouraged to see your faces here this morning. This is the reality. If you woke up today and you came here and you can confess Jesus is Lord, Corinthians tells us that is only by the Spirit of God. If you were singing some of these songs and you felt your heart moved and warmed because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus, it's because the Spirit of Christ is at work in you. So I thank God for the Spirit of Christ at work in you. You, saints, be encouraged. As much as you would compare and say, man, I just feel so distant or cold or far. No, the God is at work. And we can come to him and say, Lord, warm my heart afresh. If that, if that is not alive in you, he welcomes and beckons us to come and say, Jesus, my affections feel far and weak or numb. Would you come? fan into flame. Give me, give me a heart. Give me affection. God loves you, and he longs to give you more of his spirit so that you would treasure him and his son. Because on the back end of that is all of the promises of his saving work already for us, not dependent on us, but what he has done, and his saving work and his spirit and keeping work for us to the end. That's why I love how Paul be sure, be, was sure to communicate that to them, and he, I believe God is saying this to us. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what we see through opaque window now, dimly, we will, it will be pulled back and we will see Jesus fully and completely on that day. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for, thank you for your spirit that is at work in and among cross of grace and saints here I see affections for you. I hear of those affections. I observe faithful enduring in the faith where people are saying with their life, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, I ask that you would do that more in us, Lord. 
Would you do that more in us, deeper in us, Lord, and we would be ongoing conduits of help and encouragement with one another that we would experience the empowering grace of your Spirit to treasure you more, to seek the, the whatever part of our life, whatever our calling is. Our calling isn't Apostle Paul, his same mission, but that calling is in marriages, and that is as parents, that is in our jobs, that is in our friendships, Lord. Whatever those places look like, Lord, is, may you excite and focus our ambition to know you, Jesus, and to help others know you. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen.